Production support for Earth Eats comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats. I'm your host, Kate Young. So obviously traditional enchiladas are made with corn tortillas. There's a lot of things that are not traditional about this recipe. This week, Chef Arlen Llewellyn of Function Brewing shares an innovative vegetarian spin on chili verde. Harvest Public Media has a story on the role of forests in filtering contaminants from water. We tag along with a beekeeper installing a new package of honeybees, and we hear about farmers making their land more welcoming to migrating birds. That's all coming up in the next half hour here on Earth Eats. A new study shows that forests are really good at filtering contaminants out of water, but they're not catching everything. Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports that an agriculture-related pollutant is getting through, and climate change is making it worse. Two important parts of agriculture, fertilizer and animal waste, have a lot of nitrate in it. That's a nitrogen and oxygen mix that can cause serious health problems. Anne Scheckinger is a senior analyst for the Environmental Working Group, a nonpartisan advocacy organization. She says even acceptable levels of nitrate in drinking water is a major threat. And many newer studies have shown that drinking water um, with levels of nitrate at just 5 milligrams per liter or more can cause increased rates of cancer such as colon, bladder, and ovarian cancer, as well as birth defects. And if you think of the water cycle, nitrate is there. It's in rivers and streams. It's in the atmosphere. It's in rain. And as the number of severe storms and floods increase due to climate change, so does the speed of water carrying nitrate. The Yelton Spring in Missouri's Mark Twain National Forest is running strong. The cold, clear water is flowing rapidly out of a cave-like opening over rocks and fallen tree branches in what was a dry creek bed. Kelly Whitsett is a forest hydrologist at Mark Twain. She says it's been a very wet spring. And uh, surface-wise, it's from runoff into the streams um, during a precipitation event. You also have the subsurface influence where the springs carry water into the streams too. Whitsett says this water is moving quickly into streams and rivers that leave the forest and end up further along the watershed to other rivers and into groundwater aquifers. Heavy spring rains are the kind of events Stephen Sebastian says makes water move too fast. He's a research hydrologist with the USDA Forest Service. He says he always knew forests were good filters but wanted to figure out how good. Sebastian says when water enters a forest, either through rain or runoff, the soil, leaves, and trees absorb a lot of stuff, and it leaves cleaner than when it came in. But he wasn't sure how well it filtered nitrate, so he studied 21 years of data from more than 100 streams in 10 states in the North and Midwest. There were some particular short-duration events, rainfall or snowmelt events, when some of that atmospheric nitrate rapidly reached the streams, and those amounts were rather large. 
Sebastian says as there are more severe storms and floods, more nitrate will move through water unfiltered. Schechinger with the Environmental Working Group says the study underscores the need to improve efforts to keep nitrate out of the water supply. So we really believe that implementing agricultural conservation practices like edge of field buffers or cover crops or grassed waterways could prevent nitrate from getting into drinking water and just getting into our water bodies in the first place. Schechinger says it can be costly to clean nitrate out of drinking water supplies. Des Moines, Iowa spent more than $15 million removing nitrate from its drinking water. She says preventative measures are cheaper. And researcher Sebastian says his findings should be causing policymakers to ask some basic questions about forests, water, and agriculture. And if we can think about what we want forests to produce, how effective we want them to be in their production, and how much nitrate do we want to move through forests, this is where the information can be really important for folks. Policymakers' next step, Sebastian says, should be looking at the data and figuring out how to reduce nitrates entering the water system. Then he'll be able to look at the numbers a few years from now and see how well those changes are working. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Next, we join Chef Arlen Llewellyn at Function Brewing for a vegetarian spin on a classic dish from Mexico. We are making a jackfruit and white bean chili verde. And then I'll show you at the end how to make turn that into enchiladas if you want. This isn't something we normally do here. At Function Brewing, our menu is primarily soup, salad, appetizers, and dessert. I sort of describe it as light bistro food. Did I miss sandwiches? Wow. Soup, salad, sandwiches, appetizers, and desserts, and obviously beer. But in this uh, particular situation, I was preparing this dish for the Community Kitchen Brunch Fundraiser. They do them about once a quarter every three months and they have a bunch of different local chefs making courses. You choose the item you would like and you get a nice three course menu paired with Cardinal Spirits cocktails. The whole thing is $50 and all of the proceeds go to the community kitchen. Everything is donated. Yeah, this was a brunch uh, dish I came up with for that. Was I was asked to make a vegetarian entree. I was thinking about how to make chili verde be vegetarian and then I turned that into an enchilada, we served it with some sauteed peppers and spinach on the side and then topped it with a poached egg. There was a course before it and a course after it, but in and of itself, it's a standalone meal in terms of getting all of your nutritional touch points in. Typically, chili verde is made with slow simmered pork. It's a really rich, delicious stew. The pork fat balances out the acidity of the tomatillos. I wanted to make a vegetarian version of it. I think the biggest component is to make sure that you're capturing the fat that would be coming from the pork normally. So we're gonna be doing this with butter start with the vegetables that need to be roasted. Tomatillos are these goofy looking green tomatoes that come in a very strange looking paper packaging. What you do want to feel for is that you have a nice firm tomatillo beneath the paper. If it's mushy, just like a regular tomato, you're not going to want that. You'll want to remove the papery hull and wash the fruit well. It has a sticky residue that you need to remove. We're going to cut these in half onto a cookie sheet, uh, baking sheet. Either you can put parchment on it or grease it, but you will want something because the tomatillos are gonna put out some liquid, which would get pretty sticky. And we're just gonna put the cut side down on the sheet. So the poblano pepper, cut the top off, and then we're gonna cut it in half lengthwise and pull out the interior portion with seeds and ribs. Also put those cut side down. We're gonna put them in an oven that's been preheated to 400 degrees and let them roast until the tomatillos start to brown and then the skin puffs up off of the poblano peppers. I would start checking it at about 20 minutes. After roasting for 20 minutes at 400 degrees, 
Chef Arlen pulled the tomatillos and poblanos from the oven. The tomatillos gave up a lot of liquid, and that's great. We'll capture all of it. We're going to use the whole component. Um, and then I said the, the skin has started to brown. And then some of the skin on the poblanos has popped off. So any portion where it has popped off, we'll just go ahead and peel it off. Don't stress about it. If you can't get it off the whole pepper, not a big deal. We're also just going to roughly chop this up. We will be blending this later. So we're going to start with a whole onion. We're going to dice them up. Don't worry about it being perfect. Again, it's going to be blended later. So we just want them to be in small enough pieces that they're going to cook thoroughly. So we're going to put these onions in a soup pot with three tablespoons of butter. And I started out at medium high, but once it comes up to temperature, we're going to lower it down to medium to medium low. We are not trying to caramelize these onions. We want them to be fully cooked, fully translucent, but without that caramelized flavor. So once we've sweated out our onions with the butter, we are going to add to this our tomatillos and our peppers. Um, we're also gonna add two cups of water. We're gonna loosen up the onions from the bottom of the pan. And then we're gonna put a cover on this and just let this simmer medium to medium low heat until everything gets really tender and, and it starts to reduce a little bit. While this is simmering away, um, we're gonna chop up a cup of cilantro. This simmers away and starts to reduce a little bit and everything gets tender. We're gonna go ahead and add the cilantro to it. And we're gonna just gonna go ahead and blend this up. I'm using an immersion blender, but we could transfer this in batches to a blender and do it that way. Blend until you reach a nice salsa texture. No big chunks, but it doesn't need to be velvety smooth. So to this, I'm going to add some jackfruit. I'm using canned jackfruit. You can buy a whole jackfruit in the grocery store, or you may get a need to go to a specialty market. But I don't recommend it for the faint of heart. Based on whether or not it's uh, less ripe versus more ripe, you get an entirely different product that can be very fussy to process down. And you also end up with a very large volume because jackfruit are not tiny. I personally prefer to just pick up a can of jackfruit if I'm just making something at home. And the jackfruit in a can is typically pretty minimally processed. In this case, we just have, you know, jackfruit water, salt, and lime juice in this can. At this point, you might be asking, what is jackfruit? Jackfruit is a large, tropically grown fruit typically used in South and Southeast Asian cuisines. It has a thick, rough outer skin, and the inside can be soft and fruity when it's very ripe, or firm and more neutral tasting when it's underripe. And it's become popular in the last several years because um, it has a relatively neutral flavor, but it has a very chewy, meaty, somewhat stringy texture, which is a great textural substitute for pork or uh, pulled chicken. If you put it in a dish that has a very strong flavored sauce like barbecue or in this case chili verde, it's a great substitute for meat. The interior texture of it reminds me a little bit of like canned bamboo and then the exterior gets into the more of these little fine shredded feathery pieces um, that definitely look very much like pulled pork or pulled chicken. So we want to drain the can. That's a very um delicate flavor. It's a little tart from the lime juice in here. Kind of reminds me a little bit of a canned artichoke or hearts of palm in texture and in flavor. Brands do vary in terms of how tender the jackfruit is in the can. So you do want to try it. If it's still very firm, um, then you're going to want to let this simmer longer. Um, so in this case, I'm just going to let this simmer for about 10 minutes in my Verde sauce. So once we've um, chopped it down to a nice porky looking texture, we add that to the Verde. Um, we're going to let this simmer until uh, we're getting going to get a desired texture, which you want the water to really feel like it's cooked off and it has similar to a texture of a chili. You know, it kind of hold together a little bit if you put it on a plate. 
So we're going to simmer it in, um, with the lid off until we get that texture. Once we have the texture we want, we're going to take it off the heat and add our last few components. So we want to add some white beans. Obviously you could cook these from scratch yourself. In this case I'm just using a 15 ounce can. With, with canned beans you do want to make sure you drain them and rinse them. I'm going to stir that into our verde and we are going to add three tablespoons of garlic powder and two teaspoons of salt just to finish it off. Um, we'll stir this all together and maybe let it hang out in heat for a minute or two just to fully warm through. We've got the full recipe for jackfruit verde on our website eartheats.org. And later on in the show, Chef Arlen Llewellyn will show us how to turn this into some tasty enchiladas. So stay with us. Production support for Earth Eats comes from Charles Schwab and Company Incorporated, whose local branch is now located at 1155 College Mall Road. Independent branch leader Jeremy Zeichner, CFP and team, offer personalized financial plans matched to investors' goals. More at schwab.com Bloomington. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. As prairie and grasslands gave way to farmland, habitat for birds and aquatic life disappeared. But what if there was a way to make space for native birds and give farmers a little extra cash in return? Harvest Public Media's Madeline Beck looked into a program that's trying to do just that. That's the sound of researchers trying to gently, or not so gently, put together a tower with antennas to help track birds. More specifically, track American golden plovers. It's a bird about the size of a Coke bottle on spindly legs, and it has one of the longest migrations of any bird, constantly on the move from Argentina up to the Arctic Circle. Ben Williams is leading plover research with the Illinois Natural History Survey and Prairie Research Institute, and he says the bird's stopover in central Illinois is important because they're fueling up to finish their trip north to breed. They need to eat a solid amount, or... They might not breed very well, or they'll have a failed nest, and then you start to see population numbers dip. There's only a few hundred thousand of them total. It's a bird of conservation concern, meaning there's worries about its long-term survival, but there's not enough data to list it as threatened or endangered. Here's a research recording of what they sound like. William says a key habitat for the bird is shallow puddles and fields, which could help it get food like worms. And that happens to be habitat for other kinds of birds too, like ducks, geese, killdeer, sandpipers. Greater and yes, lesser yellow legs, willets and avocets, and there's a whole suite of bird species called shorebirds that like to wade in very shallow water or mud, kind of mudflat areas. But those areas disappear when farmers use field tiles, that is, underground systems that help siphon water off of fields. Drier ground makes it easier to plant, grow crops, and work with heavy machinery. But shorebirds lose out. So there's the SCARCE program. That's Shorebird Conservation Acreage via Drainage Runoff Control Program. 
Ufta. It pays farmers to let water pool in their fields. It also helps pay to put in structures that keep that water from draining off. Farmers just need to stop up water from February to mid-April, which is usually before they plant and when plovers migrate through. Generally, when the birds head north, farmers can lift the floodgates. Farmer Bruce Thompson out near Allerton, Illinois, is a fan. Glad that uh, I could participate, and everything has been great. Thompson gets paid for the few acres of water that pool on his property. For new participants, it's about $1,000 an acre, up to $5,000. Returning participants get half that. Another benefit is that stopped-up water gives farmers' soil more time to soak up nitrogen, leaving less for waterways and more for his crops. Thompson can even use those water control structures to keep moisture in his fields if it gets dry in late summer. He also just likes birds. Of course, uh, we're, we're all for birds. Um, my wife is a bird watcher. But who is paying for all of this? There's a bit from the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, the University of Illinois, the National Audubon Society, and the National Resources Conservation Service. That last one, the NRCS, is a federal service that helps promote field practices like using cover crops or these water control structures. Those help keep nutrients, like nitrogen, in the soil so it doesn't get into streams and rivers, boosting harmful algal blooms and leading to a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. But like the fields themselves, the program funds could dry up in just a few years. And Kirk Stadola, an associate ornithologist with the Illinois Natural History Survey, thinks this kind of conservation could stave off potential troubles down the line. I think that there's so many uncertainties that you start to remove species or not care about what's out there, uh, and that can lead to many unforeseen consequences that we don't know about right now. Madeline Beck, Harvest Public Media. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. I'm a relatively new beekeeper. This is just my third year with Backyard Bees, and I just installed new bee packages last weekend, so I was inspired to share this story from a couple years back. Bloomington beekeeper Mike Bennett takes us through the process of picking up and installing a box of new bees. A lot of people think I get these bees out in the forest from a wild swarm, but actually in the past I've had to order bees through the mail. They arrive at the post office, the post office calls you, you come pick them up, and when you get there, the postal workers are quite scared of these buzzing packages. This time, I decided to go through a local bee supplier here in Indiana, in Martinsville Hunter's Honey Farm. It's a three-pound package. Each, each package contains approximately 9,000 bees. There are 3,000 bees per pound, and then there's also one queen in a cage waiting to be released. My name is Tracy Hunter, and I am the manager of Hunter's Honey Farm. I'd say in the last five years, there have been a lot more beginner beekeepers. A lot of people want to have one or two hives in the garden just for fun. Some people want to produce their own honey. There is no better tasting honey than your own right out of your hive. And some people 
are wanting to help the bees themselves. So they're wanting to propagate bees to have more bees in the area. These bees came from Georgia because in the south, they can get the bees going earlier. Whereas if we were raising the packages in Indiana, it wouldn't be until May. So the beekeeper then is going to take those bees back to his hive. It could be either a brand new one or it could be one that died over the winter, but it's going to be empty of any other bees. And he's going to shake those bees into his hive. The queen is in that cage. She is contained in there by a cork. So the beekeeper will remove that cork. Under the cork is candy, and he will drill a hole through that candy place the queen cage in the new hive with the new bees and then all of the workers wanting that queen to get out so that she can start laying eggs will chew through that candy and as they're chewing through the candy it takes time so then they're feeding her through the screen wire they're grooming her they're getting to know her her pheromones are becoming known to them and then when she emerges through that queen cage then they accept her and she'll start laying eggs and so he is now, or she is, a beekeeper. Are my bees okay in my truck? Let me see your truck. I mean, I got the window open, and I don't think... If they should not be in the cab. If your windows are both down. I put all four down. I want that breeze going through. But just put your windows down, and there'll be a cross draft. So it depends on who you talk to. Um, Hunter's Honey Farm said 24 hours they should be put into the hive. I'm going to get them in the hive right away. If for no other reason than to make sure the queen is is alive and well, I want to I want to open this package up and make sure she's alive. Otherwise, the the colony is totally doomed. Without the queen and no comb and and no brood and no ability to make a new queen, every bee in this hive is dead. Time to go put them in the hive. This is a beautiful hive. It's a top bar hive. Um, the standard hive is the uh, Langstroth hive. Um, right now I am building a feeding mechanism for the bees. I'm preparing the hive so that the bees will be able to go through the divider and drink some of this tasty sugar syrup. And I gotta drill a hole, and we'll be good, good to go, ready to go. Now you'll notice that the bees will only have one entrance right now, but I'm gonna further reduce the circumference of that entrance because I want the very limited guard bees that are in this really small colony right now, they'll have less work to do because there's less area to cover to keep out the bad guys, which are wasps, yellow jackets, other honeybees that simply want to come in and rob. See her in there? She's a little small, but she's alive. Okay, this is a part you may want to back up. I'm gonna dump them in. They will hopefully follow their queen that they have hopefully accepted. You know, there's 9,000 inside, so that's enough to start uh, drawing comb and 
Um, you know, it's the time of year where they're going to start their foraging and doing their uh, bee business. Thanks to Earth Eats founder, former producer and host Annie Corrigan for that story. Check the website for photos and links, eartheats.org. back with Chef Arlen Llewellyn, and her verde is complete. This is the finished product, a nice, thick verde with the white beans and the jackfruit already incorporated into it. You could just serve this as is in a bowl with maybe some rice, avocado, or cheese, um, but we're going to make some enchiladas with it. It's onto a greased baking sheet or a parchment-lined baking sheet. I'm going to place a couple of tortillas. And these are flour tortillas? They're flour tortillas. So obviously traditional enchiladas are made with corn tortillas. There's a lot of things that are not traditional about this recipe. We've already deviated from the traditional pork chili verde. Visually, we're taking up maybe a quarter of the surface of the tortilla with a mound of jackfruit. So we're adding um, some shredded pepper jack cheese into the tortilla. Now we're gonna roll it up as tightly as we can. So we take one half over, and we just try to push the filling up against it. We tuck the tortilla in, and just roll it as tightly as we can. And then we're gonna top it with some more cheese, because who doesn't love more cheese? I, because I want that crispy texture, I don't want to pack them into a pan, which is what you would typically do with enchiladas. You would dip the tortilla in a sauce, you'd fill it, and then you'd take like a lasagna style pan, 13 by nine inch baking pan, and just pack them with enchiladas. So in this case, I've got two tucked together because they're gonna be served together. We're just gonna go ahead and pop this in an oven, 375, 400 degrees. I would, I would start looking at about 10 minutes as to whether or not they're done. Oh yeah, so. The cheese is nicely browning, and the interior filling is starting to simmer and bubble a little bit. So that is what we're looking for. This chili verde um, is completely mild because it just had the poblano peppers, perfect for someone that doesn't like that much heat. For those of us who do enjoy the heat, I definitely recommend hot sauce. We have some pickled jalapenos here, we have some hot sauce, and we should dig in and see what we think. Yeah, it's um, it's really bright. You get a lot of acidity from the um, from the tomatillos, a lot of body from the beans and the jackfruit, richness from the cheese. I feel like it's the kind of vegetarian dish that meat eaters would still enjoy because there's it definitely feels very rich and satisfying and savory. And in reality, is in fact it's you know vegetable based. So that was Chef Arlen Llewellyn of Function Brewing in Bloomington, Indiana, sharing her recipe for jackfruit verde enchiladas. Find the details at eartheats.org. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks also to the Earth Eats team, including Aabon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, Renee Reed, the IU Food Institute, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Annie Corrigan, Mike Bennett, Chef Arlen Llewellyn, and everyone at Function Brewing. Earth Eats theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Our executive producer is John Bailey.
I'm Kate Young, and I produce the show. We'll be back next week. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Charles Schwab and Company Incorporated, whose local branch is now located at 1155 College Mall Road. Independent branch leader Jeremy Zeichner, CFP, and team offer personalized financial plans matched to investors' goals. More at schwab.com Bloomington. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838.